Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu-jitsu, and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 116. Today we have Sean Downey. Sean is a first-degree black belt and the owner of Lotus Fight and Fitness Club in Peoria, Arizona. He is the Lotus Club USA West Coast Ambassador. He shared about his jiu-jitsu journey, the decision to open up business. We talk about running the business and making a living with his passion. And today I'm going to do something different, and I'm going to give uh, two shout-outs, let's say, to two companies. One is the BJJ Stars. I don't know if you subscribe to Flow Grappling, but Flow closed a deal with them because I know they had pay-per-view before and their professional jiu-jitsu fights. They had the Grand Prix uh, not too long ago, maybe a week ago, and they paid 100,000 reais, which is a lot of money in dollars. Currently now in February 2021, is $18,600, which is pretty incredible because you're not getting punched in the face and making 20 grand that's really good and in brazil that 100,000 goes a long way so great organization and man people who are listening who are entrepreneurs if you think about putting you you know yourself in their shoes of promoting the while the pandemic he used to have his tournaments in a gymnasium so he can charge the door and stuff like that and now there's no more doors, so it's 100% pay-per-view. I know that the last one, it was not on Flow, so they closed some deal with them. Matter of fact, I interviewed Fipa Lopez before in Portuguese. He's the owner. He does a great job. He's been promoting. He's one of the very, if not the first one, first or second, to promote in Brazil super fight events, but like high level. They took care of athletes, put in hotels and fly, like almost like a, MMA in a way and really took care of them so at this moment you take that risk and bank everything on pay-per-view nowadays people don't buy as much people share uh, people find a way to get around and now with with flow grappling hopefully it's a good money because all the money is a sponsorship I don't know how much they pay but man a hundred thousand reais guys to make an event like that in, in Brazil and he's making some of those back-to-back -back events. Yeah, really big props because it's a tough task. Anyone that has ever promoted any tournament, it's something that I've been doing for 20 years. It's over 20 years. It's, man, it's super challenging. So shout out to everyone that promotes super fights, uh, fight to win. You know, a lot of, you know, there's it's a difficult event. It's not a, it's not a easy easy thing to to do that so support those events when they have pay-per-view and you want to really watch it support them or sign up with flow grappling and the performances uh, the guy while well, saying in portuguese uh, gutenberg pereira the guy that went to the finals with Felipe pena and Felipe did a man he did a great job like showing his strategy, knowing how to control the match because it's seven minutes long. So it's different. The dynamic is different. And he is an incredible competitor. Of course, got great jiu-jitsu, but he is an incredible competitor. Know when he goes to the kill, know when he needs to manage the match. He did incredible. And uh, Gutenberg, I don't know how people would say here, uh, really, he... His match against Meregali, it was incredible to see for people, for the jiu-jitsu nerds out there. I'm one of them. If you want to appreciate a match, that match was incredible because Nicholas played maybe, I don't know, maybe five different guards at least. Even half guard he played in that match. And 
Gutenberg had an answer for everything. Incredible position, passing both knees down, passing, uh, squatting down pa and passing half. Very impressive. And his match with Hulk was a great strategy match if you have a chance to watch because if nothing happened. There's no advantages, I believe. It was the whole time him on bottom on his close guard and Hulk trying to pass. But how strategic and smart he was with the his choices of attacks that end up really limiting uh, Hulk what he could do. You know, he definitely did the best he could there because Gutenberg was putting him in situations that just kind of hold him, frustrate him, but at the same time he was able to attack a few things in there. So it was very interesting, great strategy and seeing a zero zero and a guy in the bottom and a guard and a close guard win. So it was it was a great performance. So great show if you have a chance, man. This is this is awesome. And real quick, in the second company is Fighter's Choice. And when I do take supplements, I go through phases. If I'm training more, I don't do it and not like right now. I am uh, taking supplements. So usually, I I like to support companies who have the support jujitsu events athletes and fighters choice is one of them uh, the owner victor doria he was here in, on episode 22 and he's a competitor himself multiple time master world champion does a great job and just get the word out that you know maybe like oh this one's a little more expensive but well what are the other company like really doing to help jujitsu growth in a way I mean, not everyone's going to agree with my point of view, you know, but I feel that it's a way to support some of the small businesses who are starting. And, man, they're, they're helping jiu-jitsu, help sponsoring athletes, sponsoring events, make the stuff happen, you know. So why not maybe if the case is that it's a little more expensive, why not, you know, why not give some money to the companies who are supporting jiu-jitsu? So, just my two cents and support more brands that promote jiu-jitsu so that's it let's get into the interview right after jiu-jitsu tribes message Oos. the bjj mental coach podcast is a proud supporter of the non-profit organization jiu-jitsu tribe formerly live jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu tribe supports social projects who offer free jiu-jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. By the way, um, what degree are you in? First. First, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Sean Downey. Sean is a first-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu, and he owns and operates Lotus Fight and Fitness Club, which is one of the most successful academies in Arizona. Sean is a father and the Lotus Club USA West Coast Ambassador. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. So we're talking a little bit off uh, record, recording this in February of 2021. And how has been this roller coaster in 2020 for you and uh, your community, your school? How's things going? Things are going phenomenal right now to be honest uh it's actually it's like surprising how well we bounced back you know this is kind of where we were hoping to be um in 2020 you know we had this big thing i sat down with all of our uh trainers here my staff and everything and i said all right guys here's what's going to be it's 2020 so our you know mindset or whatever is going to be 2020 perfect vision let's use this year to obtain like our perfect vision of what we want the gym to be, the business to be, like where we want to be, like let's get that 
let's nail that perfect vision. We all have a vision in our head. Let's hit it perfect this year. And we started off really well. And then obviously March came around and it was just like, whoa, like this is not at all how we planned this going. Because uh, last year, 2020 was our fifth year in business. So we were really starting to get momentum. The team was growing. Uh, you know, the student base is growing and really finally like dialed in all of my trainers, my staff, everything. And it was just like, all right, we finally have all the puzzle pieces in place. Let's go. And uh, we had a ton of momentum coming in off the tail end of 2019. Um, We were talking about getting a new facility. We definitely outgrown the last one. And yeah, we were just super, super excited. Like, the energy with all of us going into 2020 was through the roof and then March came and it really just like, it crippled us. It hit us really hard because, you know, fortunately we have a really good, strong, faithful member base. And so many of our members were awesome enough to keep their memberships going uh, even through everything. And we were just like, man, what do we do? So, Uh, we kind of took a day or two to think about what we could do. And fortunately, uh, I've got a really good, you know, media team here. Uh, they do all of our social media and help me run the gym and everything. And so we sat down and we talked about it and we said, let's go to zoom. Let's, we'll run the classes through zoom. We'll run our same exact schedule. So, you know, we have 5 AM all the way through to 8 PM classes. We ran every single class. All of our trainers were still teaching all their classes. We had all of our members tuning in. And ultimately, like the best part about that was just staying connected to the community, seeing all the same people, not just being cooped up in the house um, and things like that. But of course, like I said, it was the, man, we had a vision for so much more for this year. And right now we're staying afloat but that wasn't the goal for the year. The goal was to just take off. Um, and then fortunately, when things were able to open back up, uh, we were lucky that we had a lot of people like uh, family members that would do the Zoom classes and they need somebody to do it with. So they'd rope in their roommate, their spouse, their kids, their parents. And then they started getting into it. When we came back from Zoom, all these people who were on Zoom with them all of a sudden now they're like, hey, that was actually pretty fun. I want to come in and do it. So we were able to get some new members in that way. And just, uh, you know, fortunately we were able to recover towards the end of the year. We did move into the new facility that we were looking at. Um, And then we moved in here like the second half of November of last year. Um, And we definitely, it was a huge change of scenery for like for people that don't know, our old location was tucked back in a really small like rundown complex in the everything in the surrounding area was retirement neighborhoods. So everyone around us had to be 55 or over. Um, now we're in a much better location right off a of main road, right off the freeway. Um, and it's just, we've blown up since being here. Um, so, you know, now kind of what I talk to all of our, staff and everything about adjusting the way that we went from like that real, uh, you know, optimistic 2020, we're going to achieve our perfect vision. Everything's going to go great. And I say, what it really did is that 2020 made us focus on what really matters. And that's what I think we did is we all kind of buckled down, not just the staff and the trainers here, but our students and everything, having it taken away all of a sudden, everyone's like, man, I'm not missing jujitsu class anymore. Like, now that I'm not able to do it, I appreciate it so much more. And so, yeah, 2020 was, it was definitely a really crazy year. Um, but <clears throat> we have been able to definitely come back out of it in a better position. So we're super, super grateful for that. For sure. And there's so much Zoom jujitsu that people can do. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And man, we're very lucky to be in Arizona because there are some states, ooh, we. You know, you know, you know, a lot of friends and that, you know, that, you know, big schools like solid base that literally going under. And this is, this is awful, man. 
Yeah, it's uh, our main academy for Lotus Club USA is in New York. And, uh, you know, I speak with uh, all the people there frequently. And I mean, we'd been open for months. You know, we had the Lucas Lapri seminar and had things going on. And I think even some tournaments going on here in Arizona, yeah. and they still were shut down, not even able to open their doors after we'd already been going so yeah i know that it's been it's been a wild ride for a lot of the jiu-jitsu community for sure for sure so let's just go back and when did martial arts get into your life did you practice anything before jiu-jitsu no i did uh my parents put me in karate when i was six or seven that lasted like a week <laughs> we sparred i got beat up by a girl it was pretty no much. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things like I, you know, I, I was unable to convince myself to punch a girl. She had no problem punching me. And it was just like, <laughs> ah, this isn't for me. Um, and then <clears throat> growing up, I just had uh, I've always my whole life, I've suffered from uh, insomnia. So one night I remember I was up late, couldn't sleep. It was like three or four in the morning. And I stumbled across uh, an old UFC um, video that was on TV. And, you know, growing up, I was never really into like boxing because I didn't like how guys would throw two or three punches, clinch up, referee separates them over and over. And same thing, like karate, the point sparring, it just all seemed like, you know, like, hey, either do it or don't. But the weird like mixture of it. And then I watched UFC and just saw all these guys going, the referee wasn't coming in and stopping them once they clinched up and they went to the ground. And it was just like, man, that's incredible. That's like true how a fight would really go. And these guys, what they're doing is amazing. So um, kind of got into that just at a very hobbyist level watching it. Um, had some older friends that had like old DVDs and things and watched that and then uh, a good friend of mine in high school was like, hey, I, I know this guy, his girlfriend's friends with my girlfriend. Sounds getting a little cut off. You got it? There you are. Yeah. Yeah. So he said a friend, you know, in high school said he knew someone. Yeah. So he knew someone. Um, but the thing was, you know, at the time he told me, like, it's in this guy's backyard. <laughs> and I'm in high school and I'm thinking in my head, well, yeah, it's cage fighting. Like, of course, it's in somebody's backyard. Where else would it be? So we went out, we met this guy and he had a stack of pallets in his backyard with some wrestling mats on him. And I think we did like a week or two training with him uh, and then did some sparring with some guys of his that had been training with him for like two years. And me and my friend both were like, we got the better of him in the sparring. And like, okay, so these guys have been training with him for two years and they're no better than where we're at, brand new starting out. And it's the middle of summer in Arizona and we're on black wrestling mats in this guy's backyard. So then he tells me, hey, I found out this teacher at my school trains MMA and he's actually had some MMA fights. Uh, let's go check that out. So it's like, yeah, it's gotta be better than training in this guy's backyard for sure. So we ended up going and checking this out. Uh, it was, in a traditional martial arts school, like a, it was a Korean martial art. And yeah. so it said it was a Korean martial arts place. Yeah. So it was, it was Korean martial art uh, called Warengdo and they were both black belts in Warengdo. So the instructor let them use the f and purple belts through uh, Chris Lopez. And so that's where I started getting you know, actual training in jujitsu. And I remember I went in on my first night and they showed an arm bar, the hitchhiker defense, an omoplata into a triangle. And my mind was just blown. That like, first that you can even defend an arm bar, blew my mind. And then transitioning through everything. What year was that? Um, it was 2006, I believe. Mm -hmm. And what and what part of town was that? By by where you live in in the West? Uh, yeah, so it was over in the West Valley at that time. Um, the there was like nothing over here. The lab was being built out, but wasn't open yet. Um, 
I believe there was a place called The Nest um, mm -hmm. that Joe Riggs and Edwin Deweese were doing. Yeah. And then Mark C's was the closest thing. But other than that, we had nowhere to train. Yeah, the connection is, it's rough. Yeah, so you said there's no, there's nothing in that side of town. Right. Yeah, it was, to train anywhere else, it was easily a 45 minute to an hour drive. Uh, so where they were at was, yeah, like over in kind of the Northwest Phoenix area, it was still probably about a 30 minute drive for me from my house. But, um, you know, at the time, like I didn't, know that there was even anything out there other than that um and then so that's what we did it was tuesdays and thursdays uh at 8 p.m and then finally they got enough people interested in it and opened up their own school which was elite combat sports um and so that's when we were able to like actually start training full-time there was you know, john there was john fiera no yep that was yep. him okay yeah i remember that Yep. So that's where I got my start, like with actual martial arts training, um, did my first couple jujitsu tournaments with them and then did, I want to say my first four MMA fights were, uh, out of that school as well. So now how was, uh, when was your first tournament? Do you remember which one was it? It was the third Arizona open. Okay, so that was the Broadway Rec Center, maybe? Yep. Okay. Yep. So how was the decision to start uh, competing? And because we have a lot of people listening, people who started jiu-jitsu, and sometimes they, sometimes they say, like, is they start training? No, 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 I don't want to compete. But that's something that kind of organically happens to a lot of people. So how was it for you? So for me, uh my thing was i you know i saw the mma fights i saw the ufc and i had just this idea in my mind i really wanted to be an mma fighter um but john wouldn't let us compete in mma unless we had competed in jujitsu and like a kickboxing or boxing match of some sort he wanted us to experience the competition aspect separately of both of them first uh so i did my first jujitsu tournament not really with a lot of expectations. It was just kind of like, hey, this is what I need to do um, in order to get where I really want to go with this. Uh, and I remember my first match was uh, the brackets came out and I had a guy from Megatons and I'd heard of Megaton over the years and all these things and was just like, what? Like, that's not fair. I'm brand new. I just started out, you know? Um, and I think there was 26 guys in my division and it was just like, what did I get myself into here? Um, and I ended up making it all the way to the finals. And a guy went for a head and arm choke. It was more of a neck crank. And, you know, I remember them telling us, like, you can't neck crank someone. You'll get DQ'd. So I just tapped, like, oh, he's neck cranking me. Cool. He's going to get DQ'd and I'm going to win. And I got up and I told the referee, like, hey, it was a neck crank. And he's like, yeah, well, he was going for a choke. And it was like, <sighs> so after that, it became something different Get, going through, you know, a, such a deep bracket and getting all the way to the finals and then tapping due to like a strategical error um, really kind of lit a different fire under me. So then I started competing more after that. Um, but, you know, I tell my students all the time when I first started competing, I was terrified of competition, absolutely terrified of it. I would sign up for tournaments, and as soon as I would sign up, just constant, like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I'd get to the tournament the day of, same thing, constantly asking myself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Like, if I just slip out the back door right now, nobody's <laughs> going to see. Let me just get out of here. Let me, like, no one will know. Like, I'm just like, oh, he was sick. It was, and that's literally, like, it was an uncontrollable fear that I had going through my head with that. But I kept doing it because I knew that I had goals. I knew that I wanted to get my black belt one day and i wanted when the black belt came to not to be able to like be proud that i earned it through competition through proving myself testing myself and kind of not leave any doubt to it so i did it and then probably around like maybe the tail end of purple belt is when i really started to take it more serious uh and start 
you know, like, Hey, we're getting closer to black belt. Like you gotta really, you know, make something happen, make, earn that black belt, do it the right way. And then as I became a Brown belt and started teaching, then it was, you know, I want to have my own school one day. I want to do all these things and I don't want to open my school and try and teach people something that I haven't done myself that I haven't been tested in. And so I just like made a, a commitment to, if there was a tournament, I was signing up for it and just compete in everything that I could. You know, if there was a gi and no gi division, I'm doing both. I'm doing the absolute, I'm doing all of them. So that way I could have the experience and then hopefully have the accolades where when I become an instructor, people can trust what I'm saying because they can see that I've been out there, I've done it, I've tested myself and that my jujitsu is solid, it works. And so, you know, like it went from like white belt, just terrified of the world, seeing somebody's patch and being like, oh man, they're from this school or from that school or whatever, to then really over the years, understanding my purpose and the reason why I'm doing it, having the motivation for it. Um, and that's where things change. So that's why I was trying to tell my students that are brand new starting out getting into competition is before you even sign up for a tournament know the reason why you're doing it because it's going to play through your head over and over why am i doing this why am i doing this and if you can't answer it it's like a terrifying place to be and how was mentally when you did your first mma fight how was was did you feel much of the difference you know people have different mixed feelings about this you see some guys like oh no i feel calmer if you and how was for you i think i feel like i had less nerves every time i did mma than when i did jujitsu because my way of justifying that you know was like it's one guy i just have to get through this one fight and I'll be done. Uh, it'll be over. It's just one. And if it, I'm going against someone that is better than me in striking, I have the option to take them down. If I'm going against someone that's better than me in grappling, I have the option to try and get back to my feet and keep it standing and having that like, well, if they're better than me here. I'll just go there versus if you go sign up for jujitsu, you have to be better than the person at jujitsu and you don't have any other options to it. And you, you know, some divisions like pans, especially the blue belt divisions, and you've got 200 plus people in the division, like that's a lot versus just one 15 minute fight where I can take a break in between, grab water, get instruction from my coaches, get the new strategy for the next round. You know, I always tell them, I felt like that's why I stopped doing MMA. Honestly, it was just, it wasn't as gratifying for me as going through a jujitsu tournament and coming out with four five six seven wins in a day versus just one um so yeah i think jujitsu for me has always been more nerve-wracking than mma so when did you have that spark that you wanted to open up the business and when did you actually start making the moves so I think that I kind of had the spark came um, when I, you know, I started at elite combat sports and I trained there and the coaching was phenomenal. Um, you know, unfortunately they shut down, but at the time, you know, when we were there, they always spoke so highly of you, your jujitsu and then the Arizona combat scene, uh, combat sports every day wait, wait I, can't, i can't hear uh you said uh so you heard about arizona combat sports yeah yeah so i heard about arizona combat sports uh elite combat sports was shutting down and so i made the decision to switch out there and train at arizona combat sports but it was an hour and a half drive for me both ways every day um And it was like pretty difficult for me to do, but ultimately kind of the catalyst that broke it was uh, my roommate ended up having to move out. So I couldn't, I had to work more to be able to afford uh, where I was living on my own. So the guys that were at elite combat sports said, Hey, you know, there's this new. Okay. Yeah. You said there is a uh, new place. Yeah. So it was this new place that opened up. It was a uh, Lotus club. And 
they're bringing in all these black belts from Brazil. Every three months, there's a new black belt coming in. We're learning from all these different people. It's awesome training. Um, you should come check it out. So I said, all right, let's go. I'll check it out for sure. Went in and yeah, the instructors were awesome. It was cool being able to learn from different people and really, really enjoyed it. Really, you know, hit it off with the black belts there. Um, and then they had made the decision to stop bringing the black belts in from Brazil and kind of handle things in-house with students who were there, just promoting them to instructors. Um, and at that point, that's kind of where I felt things started to change a little bit with the training that I was used to versus the training that we were now getting. And so that was kind of like this training that I'm used to and the, the training that I enjoyed. And so um, I'd got at that point, I'd met enough retired MMA fighters to decide that I didn't want to be an MMA fighter anymore. Um, but I wanted to keep this, you know, doing jujitsu and training and everything is my life. So then that kind of became like, all right, well, if I'm not going to be a professional MMA fighter, I'll be an instructor and I'll help others learn. Um, and so, yeah, from like, you know, I was a white belt for, I think four years due to the MMA training as well, not doing a ton of gi and things like that, but I was a white belt at the time, but probably four years into training, four or five years in. And that's when I made the decision, like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. And it's just a matter of putting in the work so that I can do it one day. Right on. So now let's talk about the decision of opening the place and having your you are responsible for the for the lease and that's a scary point for everyone because some mm -hmm. you know most people have a job and suddenly okay we don't have the security anymore and you need to make make it happen and especially in the beginning you're a, you know one man show you're trying to do everything you can so how was that transition in your life So <clears throat> that transition was actually kind of forced on me a bit. It actually, before I opened my own school, I got offered a position to teach at uh, like a cardio kickboxing gym. And so um, at that time, uh, it was just one of those things, like I was a brown belt looking for, something to keep my passion going and everything. So I said, sure, like, let's do it. Uh, I took on that role and uh, did that for a year. And then the owners of the gym, you know, they didn't understand how jujitsu affiliations and things like that work. And so I was a brown belt at the time, like I said, still not a black belt. Uh, I need the affiliation. I need someone to oversee my journey here. I, I can't do that. And so they said, all right, well then you're done. And at that point, like I said, I had a, a program that was established for a year. So we had students, we had people competing. There was a tournament coming up in like two or three weeks. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, we, had, we don't have a place to train. We're, it was pulled out from underneath us. So I was fortunate enough to find, um, a guy through uh, one of my old training partners, Andrew Gardner, uh, put me in contact with a gentleman who had like a, a little, almost like a private training center. Um, but he had some mats there and things like that and got reached back out to him and said, hey, uh, would we still be able to come in and use your space? And he said, yeah, sure. What are you thinking? It was like Monday and it was Saturday at that time. And I was, again, fortunate enough, he said, yes, we can go ahead and do it. But at the time we were splitting the space with them. So I was still able to work. But in doing that, it was really limiting the amount of training that we could do. So that's when it became the, that was like the moment where it's like, all right, I got to go all in on this and commit a hundred percent. So I talked to that gentleman that had the space and said, would you be okay with me taking this over? Uh, and running it, operating it 100% on my own, um, and you just vacating it for your use. And fortunately, he agreed to that. Um, I tried 
running my family business that we had before and um, the gym at the same time. And it was hard to do both. And I knew that this is what I really wanted to do. Um, so I made the decision to sell my house and take the equity from my house and live off of that for the first 18 months or whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> and just commit a hundred percent to doing the gym full time. And fortunately I got down to a point where I think I had like $200 left to my name and a $500 bill in front of me. And, uh, we had a family come in and did like a paid in full and that got me through like one more month. And then that month things just turned around and was able to, but I mean, I was like that close to losing all of it. And then, uh, here we are now, man, that's, that's crazy. And, and that's awesome that you took that risk of, because it's a huge decision with the house, something that, you know, Hey, you work for it and then you have the house and give, and that's one of the things too. Uh, sometimes I ask people, people, one of the best advice people ever received. And one of the things that I think one of the, I think best piece of advice that I've received from my mom sometimes in life you have to take a few steps back in order to start moving forward again and right. this is one example that you had to like uh you know and i had to to actually do something like that too because when 2008 2009 hit you know with um all that stuff with the the crisis and yep. and i had a so everything was good. I had a house. I was renting another one. And then suddenly uh, my town home that I was renting, man, like the complex was a ghost town. It's just house one next to the other, just empty, like empty, empty. No one could rent. Now I'm, I'm one year paying two mortgages. And then when you start getting hit, a lot of people had to stop training people that couldn't afford, you know, a lot of people got hit. So suddenly I'm like, I got to a point that I was going to make a decision to, I was still at AZ combat, but I was already working on to like in a year to open up my school. And I said, I have to make a decision right now. Either I, I keep my house and I don't open the school, you know, or I stop the bleeding right now you know, get rid of this, swallow my pride because it's, you know, the problem is when you get attached emotionally to think my house and like, I said, yeah, you need to, uh, I, I saw going, I went to like some, some seminars of like short sales and stuff like that to understand, okay, how this work. And it was rough, but that was the best decision I made, but I had to take a big step too. I'm like, okay, I need to get rid of the house in order to eventually open up the school and thank God I had the opportunity to eventually buy a house again and stuff. But the moment those decisions are hard, man, you know, and props for you to be hanging there, you know, like that close, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was definitely a terrifying moment, but, um, you know, it's unfortunate in one aspect, it was kind of forced into that. Um, but you know, it's one of those things, like if you want something and you know that that's what you want, then you can't really make excuses. And I, you know, I was fortunate enough to have purchased the house during that 2008 era when the whole housing market went down, I purchased the house at that point. So I had, you know, a, a good amount of equity in that house and was able to sell it, um, and things, but yeah, like without all that stuff it was it's a lot of the things that have kind of happened it's just you know uh almost like a divine intervention or something like a lot of these things is just you know it all just kind of worked out by like the seat of my pants but it's uh a lot of it just kind of it wasn't like i just like made some long drawn out decision it was like boom like act what are you gonna do so so what year did you actually open uh, your school, your facility? Is that five years uh, ago? It was January 1st of 2016 was the first day of being, uh, you know, 
100% in control of all finances, the space and everything. We, we made the agreement with the gentleman who had the space. Um, you know, we got kicked out of the other place the night before Thanksgiving. We made the agreement with the gentleman about the middle of December that we were going to take over the space. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, Christmas came and we'd shut down for a couple of days and basically went in, gave the whole place a facelift, painted, tore some walls open, brought in new mats, did the whole thing. And then January 1st, 2016 was, here we go. This is Lotus Club Fight and Fitness day one. Let's see where this goes. Ronald, so now without counting COVID, of course, because I'm going to ask about struggles and COVID, it has to be the number one of everyone. Unless people have other ones, I mean, chances are COVID, it's like that's the struggle. But right. so the past five years, what do you feel that's one of the biggest struggles that you had? And what did you learn from it? Because the truth is most of us, like at least – I didn't know anything about running a school or, run, you know what I mean? You just learn as we go, you know, and then you look back in our journey and be like, well, I wish I knew that before, <laughs> you know, so things yeah. like that. So what are some of the struggles, some of the difficulties that you didn't think about it, that you ran into running your own place? Um, I would say probably the biggest struggle for me is the psychology of understanding other people, right? Like for myself, like I said, I got into this because I watched the UFC. I thought it was incredible. I want to do that. I want to fight. I want to compete. I want to train hard. Um, you know, and that's what made me fall in love with jujitsu and training is going somewhere and being pushed to my physical and mental limitations. And then when I started to be like, okay, that's enough for me having someone right there going, I don't care if that was enough for you. Keep going, keep pushing, keep. And I fell in love with that. And that's what I really enjoyed. So for me, when I first started, it was like, all right, we're just going to do that hard training all the time. And everybody <laughs> is going to, want to come in and do the same thing and then you start to realize you know like especially where i am i'm not near a college or a university it's most of our demographic is families so you know you have someone come in and their full-time career they've got kids they've got all these other things and you're like everything is like death rounds and competition training it gets to be you know people don't take to it the same way. For me, I take to instruction in the most black and white form possible. If I'm screwing up, tell me I'm screwing up. If I did something wrong, tell me exactly what it is. If you need to yell at me, yell at me. Like it's, that's what I relate to. And for me, the hardest part has been understanding that not everybody operates on that same plane and how to be able to read people without knowing them for years um, and understand how do I get through to this person? How do I get through to this person? What's motivating this person? What's gonna motivate this person? And as the gym has gone on and grown over the years, that's like for sure the biggest challenge is just dealing with so many different personalities and how to address all of that uh, in the most professional way. Yeah, and this is true because uh, I guess all the instructors can reflect on, I think we all, let's say, air quotation, grew up in jiu-jitsu in different times. Right. You know, like you said, uh, back then when you started, that was like MMA was hot. Hot as right, far as right. like gyms are popping up, there's a bunch of small shows. Man, the vibe now is so different. It's so, Absolutely. so different. And like from when I, I started in 1989 and even in Brazil, pe people didn't know uh, really what jiu-jitsu was, even, you know, in Brazil. It's not like uh, jiu-jitsu was famous uh, back then. Some people maybe have heard of it, 
But now it's funny to me, and and I'm still, I'm still, man, I've been doing this for long, and I, I got so much to learn still, but like to adapt with the changes that come, like it's not like I started. There is an intro class and there's a beginner right. class. It's like, dude, here's the ocean. Here are the sharks. Welcome to swim with them. And good luck. Right. You know what I mean? Right. This is a this is a shrimp and this is armor from the garden. Good luck. Right. You know what I mean? And it's just different times. And like you said, you know, uh, and it's a great point that you bring because understanding this the psychology, you know, what people are looking for, knowing where the the buttons like to really push in each one and as the the program grows it's hard it's it's uh it's a very tough task for all the instructors for sure yeah definitely um you know it's good i, I obviously it's helped me outside of jujitsu as well but you know ultimately i kind of got faced with that crossroads of when i I can't hear you said about the cross. Uh, yeah, and no, I couldn't hear you said about the when you got into the crossroads. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So I was saying I got to a crossroads when uh, I first kind of, when the program really started to like, it was growing, right? It, we had members, we had something and it got to that point where it's like, okay, this is for sure going to be something. Where do we want it to go now? And uh, what I was saying is that, when I started, like the goal was simply like, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to have the best jujitsu school. I wanted to be the best instructor. Uh, I wanted my competitors to be the best. And I think that's like a thing that like a lot of people oftentimes are maybe intimidated to say or embarrassed to say, I know that that school down the road is always going to be better Then it's like, let's just go to that school and let's just train there. So my goal was like, I wanted to really make something out of it and then again we started growing and it was like man we have some people that don't really want to compete they don't want that push they don't want uh to train at this intensity and then we have others that are really taking to it and growing from it and becoming strong competitors and i kind of sat there like do i just keep pushing everybody and say, you know, only the strong survive and you either can make it in our gym or you can't, or do I adapt the way that I approach things and, um, you know, adapt the way that we teach and things because ultimately, you know, the goal is to spread jujitsu as widely as possible and to spread, you know, good solid instruction and things like that. So, that was like a struggle for me for a while. Like, you know, do you keep like, hold on to that pride of like, Oh, we're the toughest training and you know, you can either make it here or you can't, or do we develop and do we change this and grow from and uh, kind of, you know, sat me down one day and said, Hey, a lot of, you know, this guy over here is not liking the way that we're training. And it was a guy that, you know, I thought like, oh, that guy loves this. He, you know, he's been around for forever. And then, hey, this person was kind of saying this. And it's like, oh man, like a lot of these people that I think are enjoying training like this, they're actually not. They're just doing it because that's what we're doing. But, you know, I don't want to lose that guy. He's a good guy. I love having him around part of the gym. So if he's upset and she's upset and they're not liking it, maybe this isn't what everybody wants. And so then we just kind of made the decision to we do two classes. Now we do the classes for the people that want to compete and want to really get in and get after it. And we do the classes for the people that just want something to do and to learn jujitsu and have an activity. And ultimately I think that's was definitely the right decision, but you know, that was for me, I was, I don't know, I was young, early uh, mid twenties at that point and kind of trying to navigate through all that was, a lot at the time yeah i was uh, actually given an interview the podcast should be coming out soon the road radio um and we talk about some of the the only the strongest survive type of thing and i this is just an opinion i don't i don't think it's a fact it's just gustavo's opinion but and then we kind of agree that a lot of the culture was brought from the brazilians because that's how they ran things in brazil so when they came right. here like 
hey, this is how we do things. We just train hard and it's you just go to war every night. <laughs> and and then you grew up in jiu-jitsu. Uh, and your understanding was, well, that's what we do. We go to war every night. You know, so right. it took many years for so many instructors, including myself, uh, to everyone to be like, wait a minute, we need to find a balance here. You know, right. um, Fabio Gugel, the leader of Alliance, he he used the term that I always steal from him that it's awesome and say, like, if you survive, especially the 90s in Brazil, there was a time there's a lot of rivalry and stuff like that in schools and right. which eventually kind of got into the U.S. a little bit of that. And then in Brazil, fade away and then U.S. fade away. That, that, that kind of same uh, thinking, man. But he called like if you train jiu-jitsu in the 90s and you still involved with jiu-jitsu, not that you're a teacher or whatever, you're still involved, you still practice jiu-jitsu. They're called the survivors. You know what I mean? Because only the survivors would stay. No one that right. is saying would go to a school that there's, especially there, there's no fan, there's no AC, stinks. No one wants to clean the, the mats. I mean, we couldn't really clean the mats. You're like, just the material of the mat. Um, right. It's it's nasty and stinky, and you get in your ass kicked every day. It'd be like, why do I want to stay here? So you have to be part of the survivors. There's no like, oh, he's doing no, 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 no. You're, you're either training with everyone. Guys are getting ready for the tournament. We got tournaments. We got championships to win. And people are like, dude, I don't want none of that. You know what I mean? So right. only the survivors really stay. So in Brazil, man, I saw so, so many people just like, this is too much. You know what I mean? They, they just couldn't right. stay. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of like the things that I always try to keep in mind, um, I grew up in like the, <clears throat> like a punk rock, like hardcore music scene. And a lot of that, you know, the, the lyrics and the things of that come from, you know, speaking with a purpose and, uh, I remember I was at a, a concert once and, and one of the lead singers of like one of my favorite bands, you know, he was talking about how, you know, it's important for us as a generation that you have to, you know, of course, respect your elders, respect the people who have laid out the foundation, respect the people who have put things in front of you. But also we have to understand the responsibility for change and for improvement. And so you need to respect those that have paved the way, but you have to also understand that if there's still flaws, we need to change them and not just like, well, that's the way they did it. So that's how I'm going to do it because otherwise we'll never improve. And I think how that, you know, resonates for me with jujitsu is I tell people all the time, you know, jujitsu started because all of the other martial arts were nonsense. And that's where like the Gracie challenges came as they would go around to these guys who were teaching you know, watered down arts and say, look, that doesn't work and we're going to prove it to you. And so for me, that stood out like, yeah, that's awesome. Go in and take what's yours, do whatever, you know. Uh, but at the same time, if we as the jujitsu community flush everybody out, but they a slower pace, a little different way than just like the kill or be killed, if we're pushing them towards those same things that we're trying to steer people away from, then it's, it's not going to get anywhere. So, yeah, it's, it's so funny, man. Uh, one of, uh, one of my instructors and one part of my, my journey, uh, Fernando, he, uh, and then eventually he stopped teaching. And that's when I start, uh, working with, uh, under when I was a purple belt, but the, <laughs> just the things that I've seen, like in an early nineties in a room, telling like people wouldn't believe and if he's doing that in us you to get sued <laughs> you know right. what I mean? some of the things that i've seen in kids class um it's just incredible um i remember and the funny thing is the parents are over there they're watching and they're like yeah right. they're getting tough and i'm like he did a back then uh we call in, in portuguese taparia which is like basically pancreas training open hand you know, you smack the hell out of each other, takedowns, grappling, that kind of stuff. You know, that was the right. back then, especially in the 80s, that was huge in, in jiu-jitsu culture, you know. And then it was like Friday night, take off your top, and then people just smack the hell out of each other. You know, no skills, just 
getting used to. So you do that with kids, you know, and there was no protection, no, no nothing. And I would go early, just watch that. It would just blow my mind. Like, oh <laughs> my God, like, what am I watching here? And the kids were tough though. They're really tough, you know, and, and I, I yeah. saw a lot of as crazy as a sound. I would never do that, that, that approach. But I say back then in like early 90s, you see parents sitting there and then the things that would tell them got them pumped up and they would, I'm talking like seven years old, like smacking right. each other and they learn how to clench. And I'll tell you, I no one of the mess with those kids. You know what I mean? Like that's real, yeah. like smacking sparring <laughs> so it was crazy so it's um it's really interesting you know uh, to see the <laughs> the transformation of jiu-jitsu over the years and seeing how how professional it is right now and and that's it you know people are gonna find the places that you know whatever they're exactly they're looking for if they want more competition i definitely toned down a lot a lot over the years with with competition very very much and and if people want to go this route up you know do it do what we can but it's definitely not how it was it's just like like you said and it was just okay win and, and win and get championship and then train hard and then yeah and then scare a lot of people away you know so during your your journey as a business owner do you look for information as far as podcasts, book, audiobooks? I mean, how do you try to get information for, for your business to things that you can improve? Just uh, networking with people. So what are your thing to get more information? Yeah. Um, so for sure, I like to listen to like podcasts or audiobooks. Um, I don't have the patience to like read at night, but I'll listen to audiobooks when I'm driving around and things like that. Um, but I mean, I would say probably the biggest thing is, yeah, like talking to other business owners, like talking to uh, friends of my parents who are business owners um, and hearing what they do. And I think ultimately a lot of that stuff is beneficial, but if you were to ask me like what the biggest thing is that has helped me get where I am, it's been paying attention to what the others are doing wrong, watching other gym owners, other business owners, other whatever, and being involved in these places or seeing and seeing how kind of seeing that what not to do and really focusing on that because, you know, it's one of those things like, when you're a kid growing up, you can do a million things right, but your teacher doesn't send home a note that you came to school, you tied your shoes, you didn't talk to her, you didn't do whatever, but you do something wrong at school and they're going to tell you and they're going to tell the parents and they're going to, you know, all those things. And there's like that saying or whatever, like a happy customer might tell one person, but an angry customer will tell 10. And so that's what I've really tried to pay attention to is the things over the years where I've seen other business owners do things that really upset people or were detrimental to their business and trying to just avoid and be like, how can I avoid that situation? And how could I do that better? And that's ultimately, I think what has, and my own mistakes too, right? Like not just other people, but making mistakes myself and being like, well, that didn't work you know, let's try something better the next time around. But I think failure is our greatest uh, teacher. So seeing that kind of stuff, I think, is what's helped me personally. For sure. Is there any audiobook, any, any book that comes to your mind that it was helpful? Anything that stood out that you can think of? So the biggest thing, the biggest book that, like, made an impact on me um, – and not necessarily like just business related, but uh, I read the book, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. um, and what he talks about in that book is like, if you're gonna hire somebody, don't go the cheap route, pay the more expensive person. Because the reality is, if you're paying somebody what they're worth, then it's worth paying them that. So rather than, you know, trying to, like one of the biggest things that's helped me was 
you know, when I first started trying to hire like high school kids to work the front desk of the gym and, you know, it's, oh man, it's cool. You come in, you give them a gym membership, pay a minimum wage. They're thrilled and they'll do great. Um, you know, all these kids are on social media anyways, so they'll be able to do it. And it was just like one after another, after another, like, man, where's like the maturity, where's the work ethic, where's all these things. And then I made the decision, like, let's, you can't cut corners with it. And that's kind of what I took away from that book. Obviously that book talks about a lot of things, but that specific chapter of that book where he talks about not cutting corners, buying the right equipment, buying, you know, paying the right people, you know, doing things the right way and paying the money if that's what it takes. But if you do it right and you're making smart decisions, then it shouldn't matter how much you're paying out. What's that? Yeah, no, cause it, it, it cut off. Um, so we're getting close to the end of the interview. So just a few more things. One is looking back, let's say five years ago, when you opened school, what advice, what piece of advice would you give to the younger, five-year younger Sean that is opening the school? And based on what you've been through right now, what's something that you could tell them? I know it's hard to pick one. You know, <laughs> right. Um, the biggest piece of advice, like ultimately, like you said, there's a lot of things that I would tell myself, but I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give myself is just to trust in the process and to believe in myself. You know, when I started, I was a brown belt at the time. And that was like a daunting thing. You know, how do we promote our school? We're brown belts. Somebody's going to walk in and we're brown belts and there's a black belt somewhere else. Why would, why would they want to come train with a brown belt? Why would whatever it might be? And then, you know, you have those cancerous people inside the gym and you have that month. We need that versus seeing like, you know what, like the most important thing, is the energy and the the vibe that you've got going on in the gym and the confidence in yourself to you know go in and bring good energy into the gym every day and i think that's like ultimately like i look back on some of the stuff that you know the doubts that i had or some of the things that i kind of dealt with that that just wouldn't fly at this point letting people be around you know and bring down the whole vibe of the gym. But I think the, the number one advice that I'd give to like anybody who's running a gym is the energy and the vibe in your gym is like the most important thing. We all know that there's gyms out there that their jujitsu is nothing special, but the vibe there, the energy there is what keeps people coming. And people have massive schools that their jujitsu is nothing special at all, but you know, it's not just, again, about that killer be killed mentality. It's teach good jujitsu in a good environment. And that's going to be the key to success. For sure. Now, uh, to wrap up, what are you currently excited about? What's going on with your school and what you got? Uh, currently excited. We got, uh, you know, I think a lot of the people, at least in Arizona, know that where my program really started was with my kids program um now our adults have gotten on board as well but for the longest time it was like i think people thought that i was like just a kids coach um i started out with a like a core group of kids um and again anybody who knows me or my gym knows that like those kids are literally like my kids like i'm incredibly close with all of them um, and for the most part now, just this past uh, promotions that we did in January, uh, I was able to promote a lot of them out of the kids ranks into the blue belt, the juvenile ranks. And finally, uh, IBJJF is allowing juvenile divisions for South Carolina um, in April. So I'm really, really excited to watch these kids that you know have been with me since day one that I've watched grow up and watched develop and all these things like I'm super excited for our first tournament where all these kids now get to go out as blue belts um and compete and do that uh you know that's kind of like what you've been waiting for like with the kids you see a kid you're like oh man they've got potential maybe one day they could be 
you know, an IBJJF champion or whatever. And now here we are, we're finally at that point where they're working their way into the adult tournaments and being able to start doing that. And so the fact that the IBJJF is now finally allowing juveniles to start competing again, I'm super, super excited to watch these kids go out and test themselves and, uh, you know, see what comes from that. Yes, sir. So, Sean, thank you for the interview, man. I appreciate. Congrats on all your work and thank you. and your new building, too. I can see back here, you know, like, see, it's a big mat. How big is your mat now? Uh, this is our main uh, jiu-jitsu mat space. So this space is 4,000 square feet. And then we have a kickboxing and wrestling mat space over there that's, I think, just shy of 2,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, congratulations, man. That's a huge, huge spot. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah we, got, we got lucky. It was a, a old gymnastic space, and the people who own the building ran the gymnastic space themselves. And we had a lot of mutual families where the kids, you know, the daughter would train here and with us or the son would train with us, whatever. And uh, they got to the point where they were ready to retire from teaching gymnastics and they had heard about our program and where we were. And they actually came to us and approached us uh, to come in and take over the space um, and worked with us with it and everything. And so we got super, super fortunate, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. Like I feel super grateful and to be able to come here every day. And like, I tell people, it's not even like a, Hey, this is my gym. It's just like, man, like from the beginning, it was like the West Valley needs a gym like this. And just to come in every day and be like, we finally have a gym like this in the West Valley. And that's just the coolest part is just for me, like I get giddy being able to train here, being able to come in. It's not even like a, look at me, what I've done. It's a, wow. Like I'm so lucky to have this much race to roll and to work out and to do all these things. So we're super, super happy with it. Awesome. Thank you so much. One more time, Sean, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yes, sir. And everyone see y'all later. Ooh. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.